This is Duke University. Um, so, we are honored to present this year's award to Dr. Jordan Capsulo, who is the co-founder and chairman of VisionSpring. Let me tell you a little bit about VisionSpring, and some of you might know VisionSpring formerly as Scojo Foundation. We've awarded this for their tireless efforts to improve the vision and economic opportunity in countries all over the developing world. Now, as you'll hear from Jordan in a few moments, more than 800 years after the invention of basic reading glasses, the majority of the world's poor still don't have access to them. Hundreds of millions of skilled workers, whether they're tailors, weavers, mechanics, farmers, and housewives, are unable to have and earn a livelihood because of this basic lack of vision, and therefore it degrades their ability to bring in an income, obviously re resulting in impoverishment. So founded in 2001, the Vision Spring delivers affordable eyeglasses to some of the world's poorest, hardest to reach communities through an innovative business model that draws upon techniques and concepts from both the business world and philanthropy. That's the spirit of our award tonight. By educating and empowering over 3,000 women to serve as vision entrepreneurs and equipping them each with the business in a bag, which is just an amazing concept, which contains proven products and materials needed to market and sell eyeglasses at affordable prices, Vision Spring is bringing dramatically improved vision to more than 350,000 individuals uh, at the base of the economic pyramid, leading to significant improvements in health, income, and productivity in the world's poorest communities. Um, to accept the award tonight, we have Dr. Jordan Castle. Let me tell you a few words about Jordan, uh, just as his background before we invite him up. So, not only is the founder of, of Vision Spring and Scojo New York, um, but he's also the founder of the Global Health Policy Program at the Council on Foreign Relations, where he served as an adjunct senior fellow uh, from 1999 to 2004. He serves on a number of boards and advisory committees. A couple of them I'll, I'll mention is the Board of Directors for Lighthouse International and uh, the Medical Advisory Board of Helen Keller International. Uh, he received his doctorate in optometry from the New England College of Optometry and completed a fellowship in preventive ophthalmology as Master's in Public Health from Johns Hopkins. Uh, he's the recipient of numerous awards. Uh, I'll mention a couple of them. The Social Innovator of the Year Award from BYU's Marriott School of Management, the Aspen Institute's Henry Crown Fellowship, and the Draper Richards Foundation Fellowship. And to that list, tonight we are adding the Case Award for Enterprising Social Innovation. So please join me in welcoming a true social entrepreneur, Dr. Jordan Kessler. words, that introduction. Thank you, Case. Thank you, Salesforce.com Foundation, for this wonderful honor. Um, obviously, I'm accepting this honor on behalf of Vision Spring. Uh, this is not an honor to Jordan Castle, it's to uh, the organization Vision Spring. And as any, uh, as any uh, social entrepreneur will tell you, uh, one's success in this field is largely or almost wholly dependent on the people who end up working with the organization. And so from our board people to our staff to most importantly the people in the field, the vision entrepreneurs who are actually carrying out our work on a daily basis, it is with a deep privilege and honor that I accept this very prestigious award and thank you for that. Let me start by uh, just seeing a show of hands of the number of people in this audience who need glasses, contact lenses, or have had laser surgery in order to see the, the function. Look, look around and see that one. So that, 
that is very representative of most parts of the world. The only difference is if I was in India or Africa and asked that question, at best one or two hands might go up uh, in terms of people who actually had the glasses that they needed. The same number of hands would go up in terms of the number of people who needed the glasses, but only one or two would be able to raise their hands if I asked the following question. Of those who need glasses, how many have them? Here it's 100%. If you, have, you need them, you have them. There it's only one or two of people would actually raise their hands. The vast majority of people don't have glasses. Uh, let me start the Vision Spring story by sort of my personal journey of how I got to this kind of crazy idea. Um, what was the inspiration to Vision Spring? Um, if you ask me to summarize how I, my, my personal identity right now in a couple words, I think social entrepreneur would be a nice way to describe myself. But back in my late teens to early mid-twenties, if you asked me what was your identity and wrap it up in a few words, uh, the answer wouldn't have been, I didn't know what social entrepreneurship was. It wasn't taught in school when, when I was a student. Um, the word would probably have been uh, mountaineer uh, and uh, aspiring explorer, someone who loved the natural world. And so I start the slideshow by telling a story that occurred in the Brooks Range in uh, northern Alaska. The Brooks Range is above the Arctic Circle. This is what it looks like. And I was there uh, in Alaska for two months, traveling to the outer reaches of Alaska, looking at just the natural wonders and beauty of, of, of the Earth. And we got to the Brooks Range, uh, and we did a three-week backpack. Now, the backpacks in, in, uh, in the Brooks Range, you don't follow trails, because there are no trails. It's got 17 million acres. There's one ranger that has the whole entire territory. There are no trail systems. So it's all off-trail, and you have to use maps and that kind of stuff. And my friends and I were about 10 days into our 17-day journey. And we started to get this torrential rain, 36 degrees, blustery rain. And the first day we said, you know what? We're just going to stick it, stay in the tent uh, because it's just too nasty up there. Next day, it wasn't letting up. And we said, you know what? Let's just keep playing cards and reading books and stuff like that because we just weren't up for going out. The third day, the weather hadn't changed, but I just said, I got to get out of this smelly tent. This is just too much for any person to bear. And I said to my friends, I'm going to go back and climb one of those hills behind the tent. And uh, if I'm not back in three or four hours, uh, you can come and take a look for me. This is grizzly bear country and that kind of thing. And so I slogged up to that uh, top of that hill. And in this driving rain, I sort of sat in a ball. And I just sort of was one with the universe. It was one of these moments where I literally fused with my environment. Everything was green. Everything was wet. and wind was coursing through my Gore-Tex jacket, and the whole universe was telling me as a young guy, I was about 20 years old at the time, that I was insignificant, that I was literally dust in the wind. And I remember that just powerful feeling of, of nothingness and of being told by the universe that my life didn't matter much, that I was, I was insignificant. And because I didn't like that message, I remember standing up and almost screaming to the wind and saying, I do matter. I didn't quite know how I mattered, but I just felt somewhere inside that I mattered. And it was a very powerful moment. Take that moment now and fast forward six months down the line. Six months later, I found myself in Yucatan Peninsula, in the middle of the Yucatan Peninsula, outside of a town called Merida. 
And I was a first-year student studying to be an optometrist. And I joined a student organization that brought eye care services to underserved populations in rural Latin America. And my very first boy, uh, patient was a seven-year-old boy for the School for the Blind. And there he was in front of me, and the translator was telling me that this boy carried a double burden. He was both blind, but he also carried the burden that his family was ostracized from the community. His blindness was considered bad luck. And here he was in front of me, and it was a very complicated case. He was way above my pay grade. So I called my professor over, and she took a good look at, at, at this boy. And after taking a long, hard look at his eyes, she turned back to me, and she said, Jordan, this boy isn't blind. This boy is just profoundly nearsighted. And if any of you guys know your prescriptions, they're most likely two, three, four, maybe five or seven for really myopic people. This boy's prescription was a minus 22. So anything, he could see my hand waving in front of his eyes, but he couldn't even see how many fingers I had up. So this whole world was a big blur. We brought 5,000 pair of glasses down, categorized by strength, and my professor said, go to the strongest box and see if anything is remotely close to what this guy needs. And sure enough, there was a pair of glasses like minus 20, like 90% his prescription. And I was the lucky person who got to put these glasses on this boy's face. And as the glasses aligned with his eyes, this sort of blank countenance of a blind person completely transformed into this universal smile of joy of this seven-year-old beautiful boy. And it was one of those transformative moments that at the same time both of our lives changed. He went from a blind boy to a sighted boy and I looked up and I said, you see, I do that. And it was really a powerful moment to know that I could profoundly change the course of someone's life. And it became very evident that my life did matter, unlike what the nature was telling me uh, up at the Brooks Ranch. Now that feeling gets uh, addictive. You know, when you can change someone's life like that, you want to do more of it. And I remember also thinking that this is a, a fantastic way to measure success. You know, how, if I can recreate more moments like this, then by definition, I'm a successful person. And so throughout my four years of training, I kept wanting to get back into those villages and do that kind of work. And it was really, it drove me much more than the, the book work, if you will. Um, and I became the head of this organization uh, and went down back to Latin America a whole bunch of times. And by the third, fourth, fifth trip, I was the pill of the group. Because I was the one who was sort of asking some of the hard questions, like, you know, are, are, is this boy better off having glasses if he, if he breaks them and he can't get them anywhere else, knowing that he can see but he has no way to see? Uh, what are we leaving that's sustainable? What are we doing to empower the local communities to take care of their own problems? And universally, the message I was getting from both my professors and my peer student body was kind of, Shut up, Jordan. Don't take yourself so seriously. We're helping a lot of people. We're having fun. We're learning a lot. Um, let's just keep doing what we're doing. And uh, that didn't really sit so well with me. And uh, as time went on, I found out about, I, I started to research, like, who's doing this work in a really different way, in a way that sort of makes sense to me. And so I did a lot of research, and I found out about an amazing eye hospital in South India called the Aravind Eye Hospital that maybe many of you have heard about because it's very famous at this point. But this was back in 1988, and Aravind was kind of just, uh, it was already kind of famous, but it was in a way only starting compared to what they've achieved. 
And I wrote away to its founder, a guy named Dr. Venkataswamy, and I basically said, hey, I'll volunteer a year of my time if you provide me room and board. And uh, he wrote me back um, by snail mail at that time, no email. And uh, he said, hey, come on down, you've got a deal. So I made my way to Aravindai Hospital, where I really learned from some of the masters of, um, of social enterprise. Uh, and I learned just tons of different kinds of lessons. But perhaps one of the most powerful lessons I learned about Ar from Aravind was that uh, interventions like this are scalable. That you don't have to just take care of a few hundred people. You can take care of hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, it also showed to me that you can make markets work. Because what Aravind does is they provide hundreds of thousands of people a year with sight restoring cataract surgery, eyeglasses, all different kinds of things. Um, and they do it in such a way that they provide higher cost services to those who can afford it. And then they subsidize those folks who, who can't afford it. And so it's a wonderful cross-subsidization model, charging higher prices for those who can afford it, giving them higher margin kinds of products, and then using those margins to support the people who don't have the capacity to pay. And it all goes round. So I saw that model working, and I said, that's sort of a really important lesson. The other thing that I learned, both uh, from, from this Vision Spring relevant, uh, is that both in Latin America, where I was working, and in India, where I started to work, was that for every person who needed cataract surgery uh, or glaucoma surgery, there were 50 people who just needed glasses. And if every person who needed glasses Half of them just needed the simple reading glasses, and the other half needed prescription glasses. So I started to kind of see these patterns, and I started to say, well, in America, reading glasses are available at Costco and CVS and Eckerd's, and it's a consumer product. And why is it that you have to go to an eye doctor to get reading glasses in the very place where doctors don't exist, and it's almost impossible to find a doctor and afford a doctor? And it seemed that everything was backwards, that in societies where there were doctors and good medical attention, people could go out and buy eyeglasses off the shelf as a consumer product, but in places where there were no doctors, it was a medically controlled device. And so that sort of is another kind of observation lesson that I learned that kind of I stood back there. Uh, the other inkling that I had at the time, both at Aravind and uh, in Latin America with uh, the student organization, is we had all these wonderful local people doing all this work and like, so why couldn't we empower them to do some of the work that the eye doctors were doing, particularly in selling those simple reading glasses. So it was starting to kind of gel in my mind. Um, then I uh, found myself, because no route is too straight, then I found myself working eight years uh, in Africa on a disease called river blindness which is one of the leading infectious diseases of the eye, uh, leading causes of blindness in, in Africa. And it's caused by a, a worm that gets into people's eyes. And Merck, the pharmaceutical company, had a wonderful pill called Mechdazan that all you needed to do was get one pill in people's mouth once a year. And my job was to first map out parts of Cameroon to start and figure out where that disease was hyperendemic. And then the second challenge was once you knew where the disease was most endemic, how to get that pill in everyone's mouth once a year. That was our job. 
And so I started to learn about distribution of simple health products and how to kind of engage the community in how to get those health products out there. But the other message that I got from both Merck and the World Bank that was doing a lot of the funding of this was that they wanted these programs to be sustainable. So I said, okay, I get that. I've seen Arabin, I've seen how they sustain it. But you can't charge for the mechanism. I said, okay, now I'm lost. You know, how, do you, how are we gonna make it sustainable if there's no way to charge for the mechanism? Um, and so that was always like a puzzle to me. Is you wanted that there was these multilateral institutions were talking about sustainable programs, uh, large scale distribution programs of medicines, but by the way, you can't charge for the collab, for the for the product. So again, those numbers, those things didn't go around for me. But what I did learn in Africa, working in so many communities in so many countries, was that when you talk to people and you ask them what they needed, there was always that universal list of things that they would list. And you could probably make, let's do, give me one of the things on the list. Audible water. Audible water. Who else has that? <coughs> would be on that list? Opportunities for children. Oppor better opportunities for children. Anything else? Shelter. Shelter. Better housing. People are really fixated on roofs. It's a status to have a metal roof rather than a thatch roof. But then you ask them, well, I can't give you all those things. Healthcare, better opportunity for children, better water, better uh, housing, all that kind of stuff. I can only give you, if you had to choose one thing, what more than anything would you want? And almost universally, I learned that people would say, well, I just need an opportunity. I just need to, an opportunity to earn a living. Because what they've realized in Africa, like so many parts of the world, was that people had moved from subsistence societies to cashless societies. And that in order to get the other stuff on the list, the water and the better education and the better health, they needed cash, they needed money. And so what they really wanted was that. They wanted to be self-reliant. The other thing that I saw was that there was a lot of people sitting around not doing a lot. There was a lot of underemployment and unemployment. And particularly women were just not being engaged. And they were the power of the women, which is so prevalent, particularly in Africa, they do everything. But from the commerce part, they really weren't being engaged. There was a lot of incredible, untapped human resources. And so I started to sort of put that into my thinking, saying, okay, there's lots of people who are losing their ability to work because they can't see because they just need glasses. Lots of people who are underemployed or unemployed, lots of them are women, and all the research, I've read all the research about how if you give women access to capital and education, good things happen, and I, I bought that, I saw that uh, to be certainly the case. And so the Vision Spring model started to, uh, to gel. Uh, and, and as Matt mentioned, uh, yet another detour, because I was a little thick, it takes me a while to get to where I end up going. Uh, I spent five years working at a foreign policy think tank, trying to make arguments of why health was important to U.S. foreign policy. And I had a thesis that it was important for um, security reasons, economic reasons, and leadership humanitarian reasons. And if we kept just talking about the humanitarian reasons, it would never get on the agendas of the prime ministers and the finance ministers and the people who actually had the power. And so we had to frame it in such ways that it was insinuated into their uh, interests and into their agendas. And so I spent five years writing white papers and talking to Congress and thinking about all this stuff. And the thing I was most convinced about was the economic argument, that 
that health and economics are just directly linked. And so then, I, and after five years of being at the council where it was a 30,000 foot kind of ivory tower place, I sort of missed those days of being in the rural parts of Africa and actually doing stuff. And so that's when the whole idea of Vision Screen and then Scojo started to really form. And I sort of had all these experiences of, uh, that I just shared with you. And I wanted to put them all together. And I sort of said, well, why couldn't we just train local ladies to start small businesses, arm them with a little backpack that had all the contents for their business, our business in the bag, and train them to sell the glasses to the skilled workers who are losing their economic livelihood the weavers and the tailors and the artisans. So as the senior fellow for global health policy at the council, I got invited to Mr. George Soros's house for a thing that he was doing on AIDS. And I got there early, this palatial place on Fifth Avenue. I walk into his living room. I got there a little early, intentionally, because I figured that would be my best chance of meeting him. Um, and he was there with one other person. And I joined the circle, and he turned to me and said, you know, who are you and what do you do? And I told him officially I'm here representing the Council of Foreign Relations. But what I really want to do, and I gave him my elevator pitch for Vision Spring, or Scojo at the time. And he asked me three or four questions. He goes, are you sure that's really a problem? It seems too simple. And I said, I've seen it with my own eyes over the last two decades. So yes, it's definitely a problem. And after three or four more questions, he literally turned to me and said, uh, do me a favor, call Stuart Papron tomorrow. He's one of his big guys at his foundation and tell him I want to give you $50,000 to test that idea in Nigeria. I said, you're serious? I said, yeah, I'm serious. <laughs> so the next day I call Mr. Paprin and I say, hi, I'm Jordan Caslo. Don't quite know how to tell you this, but Mr. Soros told me to tell you to give me $50,000 to try something in Nigeria. And Mr. Paprin was nice enough not to hang up on me, and he invited me in, and we had a long talk, and he said, I think that's a great idea, but I think given where we are as an organization, Nigeria's not the right place, would you consider doing it in India? And I had obviously spent a year in India, and I said, I think that would be a terrific place to test it. And that's where we tested our first business in a bag with 18 women. Uh, six women made some money, six women more or less broke even, and six women lost money. And so that's sort of the, if you will, the story of Vision Spring. There's other chapters that I left out, but I don't want to blab up here all day, and I want to get to a Q&A session at some point. So I'm going to move on. So here's the problem. There's 400 million people who can't see to work. Um, they lack access to glasses. Uh, Vision Spring provides them uh, through our vision entrepreneur, the women in the blue. Uh, the economics are down on the bottom, that the glasses, the average retail price is around $4.50, lower in some places, higher in others. The increased net earnings per year by our customers is estimated around $106, and we can get to that model. Actually, Greg, you've helped uh, Graham and others uh, kind of create that model. So it, it's been vetted, and it's, uh, it's uh, I think, a lot of really, really reasonable assumptions that we're still working on. Um, the dollar... Uh, income to the Vision Entrepreneur and the $1 to $2 income to Vision Spring and or our partners. So that's just br briefly how the market works. We're going to, this is the next slide, it goes a little more detail. So we manufacture the glasses. We charge $2.50 to our partner organization or to our Vision Entrepreneur. So in, in this model, let's just go right to the Vision Entrepreneur because the, the cause for hope is sort of the next iteration. 
so far I've only explained that we put women into business selling glasses, and that middle group is a, the next chapter of the story. So we, we land the glasses and sell them to the vision entrepreneur for $3.50. It costs us less than that to land, so we make a margin. Then the vision entrepreneur sells it to the end consumer for $4.50, or in Guatemala it's $5, in El Salvador it's about $7. So they make a different margin depending on where they are. So that's the, the essence of it. Uh, we have three channels that we're going to talk about tonight. The first one is the direct channel where we directly develop our own direct sales force of vision entrepreneurs. We call that Vision Spring 1.0, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. And we have about 150 of those women in business. Uh, the partner channel, uh, where we work through organizations that have their own networks, and then we empower <coughs> that network to take our business in a bag and bring it into their sales force. And we have about six or seven partners in, in various countries and we have around 6,000 women who are selling those glasses now. Uh, and we, last year we sold, um, or last year we sold a total of 200,000. This year we're going to be selling around 400,000. Uh, so in the, la in the last five years, we've been selling for five years. We've doubled our sales every year for the last five years. Uh, two years ago we sold 98,000. Last year 200,000. This year hopefully 400,000. So collectively, up to last year, we sold basically 400,000 pair of glasses. This year I think we're going to match that yet again. So we're, we're growing pretty nicely. And the third model is what we call our pilot uh, comprehensive care model, our hub and spoke model, which I'll also get into. Um, let me take you guys uh, into the field a little bit. Uh, and you're going to see a five minute video. And it's going to show you the villages that we work in. It's going to have pictures of, uh, of our vision entrepreneurs and our customers. Uh, you'll see a familiar face on the video as well, um, me. Um, it's been filmed in India, Bangladesh, Ghana, and Nicaragua. So you'll see images from all of those different places. So I don't know if we can lower the lights. It'd probably maybe be a little bit more impactful if we could. Imagine if there was a way to double someone's working life, lift them and their families out of poverty, and help them live up to their full potential for just $4. That's what Vision Spring does every day by providing simple, affordable eyeglasses to people who earn their living with their hands and their eyes. can't see, you can't work. It's a simple problem. It's one that we know how to solve, and we're out there doing it. The challenge really rests in how do you get that, those products to the hands of the people who live in communities at the end of the road. Each vision entrepreneur 
will reach hundreds of people over the course of a year and change their lives because they're delivering a product that will make their customers more productive in their work. Seeing our vision entrepreneurs and district coordinators in action, it's frankly a dream come true. We started with 20 vision entrepreneurs trying to do everything ourselves and we quickly realized that the size of the problem was too big for a small organization to handle on its own. We needed help. We needed to partner with organizations that had deep infrastructure and deep relationships in the communities where they worked. It took us five years to create our first thousand entrepreneurs. Over the next five years, we're going to create 80,000 vision entrepreneurs with 10 partners in four continents. The best example of how our franchise partner channel can scale is with an organization called BRAC. They've created over 80,000 community health workers who are already in their communities selling simple health products. And all we have to do is train them and enable them to sell eyeglasses. Jordan told me about the work that he was doing in South America, also in India. And I found that that's something that we, we also need. Immediately it struck my mind that if I can bring this technology to Bangladesh and make this available to our women, they will be greatly benefited by that. In just four years, we'll have gone from just a startup pilot program to reaching an entire country and ensuring that everybody in Bangladesh who needs glasses can get them. This is just a terrific example of how quickly our organizations can scale given the opportunity to work with other organizations' networks. Our partnership with BRAC is going to be economically sustainable in just four years. For a $1.6 million investment, we're going to see a $1.4 billion increase in economic impact in Bangladesh. The benefit is enormous. The, the return on investment is, is just miraculous. I've worked in many villages like this for many years and saw the dire need for proper eye care and simple interventions. Seeing our vision entrepreneurs at work, seeing the customers taking up our product, knowing the change that's going to occur in this village because of our intervention is by far the most rewarding aspect of my work at Vision Spring. With VisionSpring, you can change a life for as little as $4. You can provide someone with a pair of glasses that enables them to work again, to become self-reliant, to support a family, to improve their community. so easy and rosy. So I just want to sort of take off of the 
the, uh, the sales pitch and tell you some of the challenges and some of the things that we've learned uh, because we've had a lot of lessons. We've had a lot of successful failures is what I call them because we, the model that we're working on now is very different than the model that we started with. So the first model that we worked on is the 1.0 model where we had the idea of training women to start businesses with this little backpack. Um, and great story and got us a lot of press and got us into business. But the challenge was that the majority of women couldn't sustain that business. That they would go into their communities and they would have a nice bump. They would get sales going, they'd get all excited, they would sell them to their neighbors and their families and their friends. But then their territory would be somewhat confined, and then six months, eight months later, their, their sales started to go down. Uh, it had to do partly with it got harder to sell once they used their little social networks. It was partly that this is not a fast-moving consumer good, so they, a person's not going to buy a pair of reading glasses every three weeks like they might uh, with soap and shampoo and other kinds of things that you've seen in the developing world. So the 1.0 model, uh, had some great lessons. We learned that people would buy glasses. We learned that they would buy, buy them for about 10% of their monthly income. We learned that they would buy them from women from their own communities. But we also found that it was really hard to sustain scale. And just like any company, realized that a direct sales force is the most expensive sales force. And so we weren't going to be able to scale the way we wanted to scale. And so that's when we went to the 2.0 models. And these are the positive and negative outcomes. And so that's what took us to the 2.0 model, which we saw in the video, which is the BRAC model. And again, good, lots of good news there. Uh, we're able to scale a lot faster. We're a lot able to uh, partner with world-class, well-recognized organizations. We're able to get our product into a basket that's more distributed so the women can make a living on a more sustained basis and not depend just on our product to, to earn their living. Uh, we're able to keep our fixed cost structure down by franchising our idea to other organizations and using their fixed cost structure uh, to grow from. So those were all the good things. The bad thing is that if things aren't going well, so some months we don't hit our target at BRAC, well, what do you do? Who do you call? Where's your leverage? You don't really have much leverage because you don't own it. It's a multi-line independent sales force. And so are they taking your product out of the bag first or seventh? Uh, are they ever, is your product ever getting out of their bag? Um, and we, these are the kind of things you don't have as much control over when you're working with an independent sales force. And so, although BRAC continues to grow really nicely, and it's been very successful, and we plan to, probably most of our growth over the next three years is going to come from BRAC, and other BRAC-like organizations like SEWA in India, Women's Development, Development Business in South Africa, um, it's we don't find that we want to put all our eggs in that basket because there are only so many organizations like that around the world and once we exhaust them, we won't be able to scale up closer and closer to those hundreds of millions. That might get us in, into the millions, but it won't get us into the tens and twenties of millions. And, that, and that's what we want ultimately. So we're looking for our, our next model, uh, which is our 3.0 model, which we call our hub and spoke model. And the genesis of the hub and spoke model um, came from really El what we saw happening in El Salvador and India somewhat organically. Um, and uh, our vision entrepreneurs really liked their work and they were doing okay with it, but what they were all, one of the complaints that they had 
was that for every person I help, there's another person who complains that I can't help them. So, as I was mentioning before, half of the people who need glasses need just the ready-made ones, but the other half need prescription ones. And so, a lot of times, these women were putting together these camps like you saw, and people would wait for two, three hours in the hot sun to get screened, and half the people were turned away saying, sorry, we can't help you here. And so that was a frustration, and that was also kind of dragging our brand down a little bit uh, locally. So the women in El Salvador said, well, what if we sold a, dollar, a $1 voucher that entitled that other 50% to go to our office once a month and get a proper exam from an optometrist and get a prescription pair of glasses? And so they started to test that. And the women used it as a new way to get revenue. They made another dollar. The customer then could get access to the optometrist, and the optometrist would then sell them the glasses. And we started to see that the optometrist was selling them glasses for $25, $35, $40, $50. And we started getting a little jealous, like, we're selling glasses for $5 and $7, but these, these people are, now they're, these poor people are spending 10 times that, and, uh, and the optometrist is keeping all the loot. And so, um, with the help of Matt and others uh, down in El Salvador, we started to look at the value chain and say, you know, where, how can we capture some of that margin? And so now we've structured it such that we now hire the optometrist, we have our own frames and lenses, and we're using that as the hub, and the Vision Entrepreneurs Act as the scope. And so these women are case-finding in the villages, selling the simple products that can be sold right at the village level for a very low price. And for those people who need more advanced care, they come to the hubs, and they're buying higher margin, uh, more value-add products in many ways. And so we're starting to see potentially going back to Aravind, sort of a cross-subsidization model started to form. And that's really interesting, and so uh, let's see how that plays out. Um, now the advantages are some of the things that we just talked about. It's more sustainable, it's less dependent on the partner sales, uh, and we can <coughs> affect the change that we want more directly. But there are some challenges. Uh, it's hard sometimes to find skilled, skilled uh, staff. Uh, quality control is, becomes more critical when you're dealing with more um, complicated prescriptions and the products are more complicated. The other uh, challenge that we were talking with uh, Professor Dees about, and he rightly pointed out, is that we may start getting some pushback from the local ophthalmologic and optometric societies because we're starting to get into their sweet spot economically. Starting to compete with them. So that's a, a risk of this model as well. So that's sort of the evolution of our business model um, from 1.0 to 3.0. Each one of those is still alive in some form or other. Our scaling strategy right now is 2.0 and 3.0. Our 1.0 uh, model is really operations research, if you will, uh, analogous to a corporate-owned franchise store where we test new products and we test new sales techniques and marketing ideas. But so they're all still alive to some degree. This is some representation of our support, the most important one being right in there in the middle. We added that uh, just the other day. Um, and uh, so you see we've, we interface with some wonderful organizations. We've been blessed as a young organization to, uh, to work with some, some fantastic uh, organizations and, and companies. So I think I'm going to leave it there. Uh, and thank you all for uh, learning a little bit about Vision Spring. And if we have a little balance of time, maybe 10 more minutes, so we can take some questions and have a little dialogue that we have time for. So, so thank you.
mentioned that um, in the 1.0, you had a, one of the challenges was a market challenge that these women sold to their networks and then the sales got down. And that's a problem that, I mean, I work with entrepreneurs of this size back in Colombia, and their markets are very reduced. Yep. Their friends, their villages. How do you go beyond that problem? Because, you know, they don't have access maybe to larger markets or to go to trade fairs or go beyond their villages. And, and I think that's one of the challenges of microfinance as well, that these micro-entrepreneurs just sell to their friends or to the networks, and, and then what? So how do you go beyond that? Yeah, it, it becomes difficult. I think it depends on what you're promising them. You know, if you're, if you're promising them a full, sustainable livelihood, it's very different than if you promise them a way to add value to their community and develop subs, um, uh, additional income for their family. And over the time, we've couched more of the latter. That you're both doing a social service by providing vision and enabling your neighbors to work more effectively. So part of the motivation and what makes a good vision entrepreneur versus one who's not such a good entrepreneur is that they are socially motivated as much as being motivated by the cash opportunity. So by stressing the good that they're bringing to their community uh, is one important component. The other important component is to just be upfront with them and saying this is not going to necessarily release you from uh, poverty, but this is going to be a nice supplemental way to make some living, uh, some income, so you can maybe buy your children more books and get them the health care that they need, um, and, and be realistic at the beginning. Uh, the, the other thing that we've been trying to do is trying to increase their basket of goods. So in the beginning, we were just providing them with reading glasses, and that only provided them with certain semblance of income. But then we added sunglasses. A lot of people needed the uh, sunglasses, and that those helped increase their income. And now we're giving them a piece of the prescription eyeglass market by both the dollar that they get from the voucher but then the voucher has a code on it that is the woman's uh, code, and she gets a cut from the glasses. And we're still kind of working out, we don't have the exact formula, but they've been getting two, three, four dollars for each $25 uh, expenditure, so 10% or so of the eyeglass expenditure. So we're able to uh, increase her, her, her income through, through those methods. But I think inherently it is one of the challenges of working in very distributed, uh, underpopulated uh, communities. Uh, do you envision a bit, uh, that's redundant. Do you envision Vision Spring reaching full sustainability at any time in its existence? The answer is that is our objective. Uh, we're far from it right now. Uh, in our first year of sales, we covered around two percent of our overall costs through sales and ninety-eight percent through uh, donations. This year will be closer to 2575. Um, I'm, I'm thinking that with some of these higher margin products that we're bringing in and keeping our fixed cost structure stable, and we, we don't intend to grow our organization, uh, we're not going to keep adding more and more fixed costs. That as our fixed costs stay flat and our sales go up, we'll be changed, we'll be getting closer and closer to that. Uh, so I can't give you a promise of when it's going to happen, but uh, in our, in our conversation at board level and sort of if you're imagining where we're going, we, we often talk around the next eight years uh, is when we're, we'd like to go from 25 to 
to a hundred percent, and uh, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. But we we think we're going to get close. Let me pick someone else over here. Uh, just a simple question: Have y'all partnered with Doctors Without Borders or any other large-scale initiative like that in terms we, of distribution? Yeah, we we haven't uh, partnered with uh, Doctors Without Borders. We have partnered with BRAC. Uh, many people don't know, but BRAC is actually the largest uh, NGO in the world. Um, they have programs outside of Bangladesh. They've got programs in Pakistan and Afghanistan, Uganda and Liberia. They've asked us to go to other countries. Uh, we've asked them not to go to other countries because we just didn't feel that we were quite ready because there's still a lot of lessons to be learned in, in Bangladesh. So we still have some scaling to do through BRAC. Um, it takes a very particular type of organization to be successful with what we do. And an organization like Doctors Without Border, although it has a nice network and it has a nice reach, really has had no experience uh, inventorying health products and selling health products and putting people into business. And so it's a very different set of skills uh, that they have versus what an organization like BRAC or SAILA might have. So uh, we are all about partnering, but we have to be really careful about who we partner with. Two, two questions. First, you mentioned that one of the lessons that you learned at the beginning is sales, uh, sale products for people who can't afford in order to subsidize the price for the others that cannot that can pay for that. Have you considered to uh, launch an, a product for uh, for high class people, uh, for people who can afford a very uh, special brand? of the glasses in order to subsidize the, the glasses for the, for the people in the base of the family. Okay. Yeah. And, and the other question is, what about the partnership with the public, with the public organizations, with the government? Have you tried this kind of partnership with government? I'll ask the, answer the second one first, but that's a quicker one. The answer is we've had, at this point, no uh, partnerships with any governments. Not by design, but just uh, uh, we, we we haven't had any opportunity to do so. We are looking to do some work with the Inter-American Development Bank uh, and getting some multilateral kind of funding. We haven't worked with the government directly, uh, but we're open to that because I think ultimately to really scale, we need to engage both governments and multinational companies. And that's sort of something that we're you know, work toward once we have our model really uh, tight. In terms of the first one, uh, I mentioned in my talk that I left out a few chapters, and that was one of the chapters that I left out. Uh, in fact, when we started Vision Spring, it was called Scojo, and Scojo had two parts to it. It had a for-profit company and a non-profit company. The for-profit company sold really high-end, really fashion-forward reading glasses to places like Saks Avenue and Marcus, and, so, and provided 5% of its profits to the foundation. So the Scojo Foundation became Vision Spring. Um, we sold company Scojo around two years ago. And one of the lessons that I learned there was that you get good at what you do. And so what I was finding myself getting good at was talking to buyers at Saks and determining which red goes with which scarf. And that wasn't really why I started this thing. Um, and, uh, and so it ended up kind of taking a lot of my time off of the, the whole reason why I started it. Uh, and there was some nice synergy between the foundation staff and the for-profit company staff, but still, um, 
I felt that there were, were ways to bring the two markets closer together. So now the sort of the, the 3.0 model is sort of that subsidy model, and rather than going to the rich Americans who buy it at Neiman Marcus, we're going to the the uh, rich poor uh, in places like Latin America who can afford $25 or $30, uh, rather than what the optical stores are asking for, which is usually $75 to $200. Uh, so it's still much more affordable for them, uh, and it gives us enough of a margin to, to subsidize the, the true poor. Um, so it's a little bit of a, a closer link between the subsidized market, like Aragon was doing, and what, what uh, and the real and the real rural port. Any questions on this side? This is a very unactive side of the room. <laughs> uh, why is scaling so important to you? Uh, I mean, yeah. you could make the judgment that uh, we can find some optometrists in some countries. We don't have as much trouble with the uh, human resource there. Uh, we can serve people more widely and more deeply uh, and well. Uh, and uh, isn't that a good thing? Isn't that maybe better than trying to serve people um, uh, in a lot wider geography, uh, perhaps more shallow in a more shallow way? Mm -hmm. Has that, have you made that kind of calculation? I want, to, I want to make sure I really understand your question. Uh, the the why scale is one question, but then the second part was a little different in my mind. So I just want well, to well, sure. I, I, you're trying to do, you're trying to do good, right? And so, um, there a lot of organizations are very enamored with scale. Yeah. Uh, um, and I, I'm not sure um, what's driving it in your particular case, but right. often it's driven by funders and, and donors and so forth. Right. Um, but, um, and, or often it's driven by economies of scale. But if, we, if, right. if, if we can get a lot uh, um, larger, we can potentially um, serve people more, more at lower cost and more efficiently. Yeah. Um, so, that, and that may be the reason why you're, you're seeking that. Uh, but uh, if it's not done in a really efficient way because of the problems you've had with 1.0 and you can do 3.0 really well and serve more people in less markets very, very effectively. Right. Is that a better way for you to be going? Yeah. Well, those are some of the kind of questions that we grapple with uh, at all different levels of, of our organization. Um, you know, I, I think the fundamental reason why we want scale um, can be summarized by a, a guy's named Chandramuli, who was a tailor who I met in India. I was in India not long ago. And he was in his late 40s, and he told us a story how he used to make 20 saris a month. And then as his vision started to fade in his early mid-40s, his quality of work went down. People were saying, hey, this guy kind of sucks now. And so next thing you know, he's making 15 saris a month. And he told us the whole story about how his business went from 20 to 10 saris, how he was a few months away from having to close his store. And how Ramadevi, that woman who was on the motorcycle in the film, found his shop, did her job, and sold him a pair of reading glasses. And within an instant, he was able to see back like he used to, and his quality of work went right back up. And we reached him in time before he went into a cycle of poverty. And the reason why we're desperate to scale is because there's millions of stories like that every year that's happening that we don't catch in time. I just happened to meet Sean Ramuli and hear his story and we caught him on time. But literally, there are millions of guys like him 
who are cycling into poverty, both themselves and their families, totally unnecessarily. And unless we can get scale, we're not going to be able to impact a lot of those so, people. So it's really for social impact. It's really for social impact. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then as you scale, there are some business imperatives, and we're able to drive our margins down and all those other good things. But the true uh, purpose of scale is to make sure people aren't going to faith that Chandra Mulli was going to go. Another question that ties in exactly to that example you just shared. Are you all able to or trying to track any of the outcomes of the work that you're doing, like getting kids in school and learning or transforming job opportunities and income? In the we, we, are, we are to some degree. Um, we're doing some really interesting work with uh, the University of Michigan School of Business, a guy named Ted London, who maybe some people know uh, here, with uh, impact assessment, and we're looking at uh, a whole bunch of different measures of uh, economic impact, quality of life impact, um, social connection kind of impact. So we do some of that. Um, but you know, sometimes I'm a little also s sensitive about that because you know, in my Scojo days, uh, we were all about you know, if uh, you sold a pair of glasses at Saks and they ordered another one. That's okay. We didn't really care how much prettier the woman looked after she bought our glasses, uh, because if we were, it would be expensive to measure those kinds of things. So in one case, the donors are saying, hey, asking questions like that, like, what's your real impact? But meanwhile, they're not really giving us much more money to measure that, and it becomes much more expensive as a business to, to track those kinds of things. And it becomes almost a burden to, to a social enterprise that's already living so close to the bone to have responsibilities that normal businesses aren't asked to have. Uh, and so we try to have a, a healthy balance with that because we know that it is important to measure impact and to be able to clearly communicate it. But at the same time, we want to be really careful about preserving our, our, our time and our, our resources. Um, I have a question going back to um, your pricing model. We talk a lot in our business school classes here about discrimination in general um, and I think it's really easy to do or more easier rather when um, you're looking at different markets that are you know, in different parts of the globe so if you're operating within the same country and you're charging different prices for as you said the rich poor and the I guess um, poor poor I can even say that um, how are you separating those different customer segments so that you're not upsetting or angering one of them or the other um, and I ask that particularly as I see um, a lot of increased mobility as people go into the cities. Um, I assume that's where some of the richer um, or wealthier affluent um, people are that you're targeting. But as more and more people go in there to get goods and bring them back out into some rural areas, or I'm sure seeing those prices, you know, talking to people about um, what the different prices are that you're charging, how do you keep those separate? And then I guess also kind of brand differently the glasses to those different markets. Yeah, and that could be like a whole class, right? And that question could be like a really great question to launch a whole uh, hour discussion on. Um, and and you're, you're, you're spot on with all, all of the uh, things that you said that framed your question. Um, one of the things that we don't do is we don't charge different prices for the same product. So if there are different price structures, the products are inherently different. Um, and so uh, that's the main way that we go about it. We only have one brand. Uh, and if we were really serious about segmenting a, high, a much higher 
group of people economically, uh, we would create a different brand. Uh, so there wasn't brand confusion. Because the other thing is that a lot of times the rich in these societies don't want to buy the same stuff as the poor. So that's also a complicated thing. But generally, the higher margin products that we sell are really the prescription products. But our ready-made reading glasses that are sort of the core of what we've done historically, whether you buy them in rural Andhra Pradesh or in, in Hyderabad, uh, they'll be the same price. But they're distinguishable enough that there is a difference to the consumer in terms of the quality? Well, it's the same, it's the same, it's the same product in, in that case. Uh, the reading glasses are all the same product. So the only products that are more expensive, $25, $30, those are prescription glasses. And so we don't have different lines of reading glasses even that are at different prices. So all reading glasses, the same reading glasses, whether you buy them in the urban center or the rural area, but the higher margin product where we're trying to subsidize the reading glass market is, uh, is mostly in the peri-urban and more concentrated uh, um, in some of our classes, we've been talking about how to transform complementary relationships into effective collaborations. Um, it looks like you guys have been able to do that, especially through the different iterations of your business model. So I would love if you could comment on concretely how you were able to form those types of partnerships, maintain relationships so that you could change um, as you grew. Yeah, the that's really an important aspect of what we do, is we have to really set up win-win situations. That we can't expect VisionSpring to only prosper with other organizations that we partner with, also to prosper through our model. And so one of the things that we look for are, we've worked historically with microfinance institutions like BRAC. And there are a lot of microfinance institutions that are there's kind of a bifurcation in the microfinance world where there's some groups that are just saying, we're banks, period, and we're happy with being banks, and that's it. And there's other groups saying, hey, we've got this wonderful platform to provide other goods and services to the community, and we want to use that platform to do other good. And it's that, that second group of microfinance institutions that we work with, and we try to say that through our program, we can help you um, reach out to the community and provide other goods and services. What we found, however, is that if our product ends up being the first product, and, in, and the microfinance institutions learn about commerce through us, it becomes a very burdensome relationship for our organization, because we're teaching them a lot, and there's only that one product, and they have to have new products, and they become hungry for more revenue stream than our product can provide on its own. So what we really look for are microfinance institutions that have these networks like BRAC of sales forces that are already selling other related products, whether they're health products or environment products, uh, and that we can add our product into a larger basket uh, of goods. Um, but our, pro our product, would, which and the reason people like them like BRAC, is that it has a lot of social relevance. You know, one of the things that Mushtaq Chowdhury talked about was that uh, Glasses are just not available in rural Bangladesh, um, and there are lots of people who sew and weave and read their Quran, and, uh, and other than working, reading one spiritual text is the second reason people buy our glasses. So second most popular. Third is so they can see their cell phones. Um, <laughs> and so uh, we provide Brack with a product that 
empowers women in their society to make more money, to sell a product that helps their customers make more money, to read spiritual texts, to do things that are also uh, positive. So they see that we are bringing uh, you know, real concrete good to, the, to, to their communities. Does that answer your question? I used to always sit in the back, so I have to be sympathetic to fellow Sort of culturally, religiously, or even or governmentally, does, does anybody, you know, put roadblocks in, you know, helping, helping areas sort of become more modern? I mean, this is fairly low tech uh, technology, but uh, um, you know, does I can see if it helps you read your Quran, that wouldn't, you know, that would be an asset. But I guess you know, and also, you know, your 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 women being your your point person in in the in the chain does. You know, do you get put some pushback from that? We, we do get some pushback uh, from that. There, we've had we've lost some of our best vision entrepreneurs because their husband and their uh, father didn't like the what was, the dynamic that was happening. That you know, you find some of these young women who suddenly have access to a lot of capital, and it changes the power structure. And so there are sometimes where the uh, male of the family steps in and says, uh-uh, we're stopping this because it's going to snowball out of control. Other examples, though, as you saw that woman in the film, Rama Devi, she became our number one vision entrepreneur in that whole district in three months. And she still sells an average of over 100 pair of glasses a month three years later. So she's just like a great salesperson. Uh, six months into doing it, she convinced her husband to buy that motorcycle. And she now employs him as her driver. So we also have that kind of So that's kind of a cool, a cool story. Uh, we've also had some uh, pushback from some ophthalmologic communities. Uh, the only place where we basically tried that didn't work was in Haiti. We tried in Haiti. Uh, I was there uh, years ago, and uh, the ophthalmologic society there. It was the first time that we tried to work through the ophthalmologic society, and it was the last time because it was the only place that we got shut down because, again, they felt an economic um, threat to, to what it was that we were doing and we lose control over the market. So we tend to prefer to kind of work under the radar, kind of create a fact in the communities that we are in, and, uh, and that might be also part of why we don't work with governments right away. Um, so we've seen some pushback, but overall, not too bad. We had a story in um, in uh, in Andhra Pradesh that uh, there was uh, a, it was bad press in the local newspaper. The American group was coming and training women to sell glasses, and they're not even the right prescription, and they're expensive. And we hired a public relations firm to sort of try to help us out, and they kind of did some digging, and they found that it was the local. Uh, optometrist and ophthalmologist from a health clinic nearby who was spreading the rumors. And when we really, we ended up meeting them. And they said, and we said, you know, why are you doing this? Uh, we're trying to help the community. And they said, well, you're sending all of the cataract people to our competitive clinic, and you're getting, and the government gives $50 for every cataract surgery. And we said, well, we can solve that. We can give you half of the cataract cases. And, uh, and that's all they wanted. They just wanted, you know, some of the cataract cases. And so they, so there's a way to, rather than coming to us and say, hey, we want our share, we're going to shut you down by starting rumors. And so those kinds of things have happened, but uh, we, we try to chip away at each one uh, as, they, as they arise. 
So uh, I think that's it. Um, thank you again very much. It's a very, very much an honor to receive this award on behalf of Vision Spring. Thank you. We have a, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, but it's a great, it's actually a great plaque. It says the 2010 Award for Enterprising Social Innovation presented to Vision Spring for sustained efforts to promote, to promote the entrepreneurial pursuit of scalable and enduring social impact from Salesforce.com Foundation and the Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship. And I will say this is made from recyclable materials, recycled glass, recycled wood um, from Ravana Design. So, right. so thank you, George. Thank you very much. Thank you.